Well, good grace and peace, church. I feel like this is really high. We're mixing up the order of our service a little bit this morning, and we're going to be doing so throughout the season of Lent. But this morning, we're starting a new series that is titled Formed, Lessons in the Wilderness. And if you have been unaware, we've entered into, we'll do the offering at the end. We'll get it, though. We'll get it, though. Thank you, Sean. And trust me, I am not going to forget the offering. As the pastor of this church, we will collect the tithes and offerings this morning. But I love that there's people in the church who wanted to collect the tithes and offerings as well. But for those who are unfamiliar, the, the season of Lent sort of kicked off this past Wednesday on Ash Wednesday. And you have made me, may, may have heard me in recent weeks talk about the Christian calendar a number of times. And the Christian calendar really is a tool that's given to us as the church as a way of forming us into the story of God. That is that we as the church and we as Christian people who are disciples of Jesus are being formed by God's story, by the gospel story. See, one of my concerns sometimes in preaching is that we all too often use the sort of the, the platform, if you will, of preaching to talk about how God can sort of help our stories, how God might enhance our lives, how God might enhance the things that we're trying to get along with in life. But the, the Christian calendar really reminds us that God isn't caught up in our story, although he is in some ways. I don't want to overstate that. But that we really are to be formed our time and our life communally and individually in the story of God. If you just think about the ways in which we do this in, very, in various ways. Um, think about in the fall or in August. It sort of marks the beginning of the school year, which changes rhythms of people and families, especially if you have young children. This is a whole different way of being in the world as opposed to summer. But fall also marks the beginning of what I... I'm now starting to consider America's favorite time of the year, the NFL football season, right? And it just shapes the way that we approach our Sundays and our Monday nights and our Thursday evenings and who it is that we're spending time with. And parts of our country, the winter sends the snowbirds into warmer climates during the winter seasons. And spring reminds us that it's baseball season and spring training has arrived and or it's spring break perhaps and it's vacation. But all of these sort of seasons, these moments in the year which sort of alter and shift our way of being in the world, this is, we are familiar with this idea that seasons shape and form our practices and our lives. And living in California, sort of the seasonal activity is a little foreign to us, right? Like we have one season, it's called awesome season all year long. And not unlike us, um, Californians that are sort of foreign to the seasonal changes that happen in our way of living. Many of us Christians are unfamiliar with the Christian calendar and how it shapes and forms us. You see, at Advent, we're reminded that the world is in darkness and in need of a savior. And the savior of the world, it comes, he comes to us every single year in Christmas and we're reminded that there indeed is good news because of his arrival. At Epiphany, we, we see the identity of Jesus as the one who is the light of the world and we have spent the past seven weeks talking about this identity and this one who has come into the world but it's in light of his glory that we recognize our shortcomings and failures. And so Epiphany necessarily leads us into the season of Lent where we think about our mortality and our brokenness and our shortcomings and our failings. And in Lent, we examine ourselves, allowing God's holy light to reveal our sin, leading us to come to repentance before him. This morning, we're gonna be reading from Matthew chapter four. Uh, this 
is the text that we read every single first Sunday of Lent each year. Sometimes we read it in Mark's gospel. Sometimes we read the story in Luke's gospel this year. We'll be reading it in Matthew's gospel. This is always the first gospel text of the season of Lent. And so let's dive into the scriptures this morning. Matthew 4 reads this way. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, guess what? He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. He'll say that to Peter in a little bit. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Jesus, as we enter into this season of Lent, we don't just want to recognize it and read all the right passages and hear all the right things and know all the right answers. Our longing really is that this season would be a forming one for us, not just as individuals, but as the church. And to do that, we need your grace. And so we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your word and the gospel and Jesus in new ways. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, in order to sort of fully appreciate Matthew's gospel here, we have to understand the story that it's echoing from the Old Testament. It is the story, in many ways, of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. Now, I have a lot to say about the story, so you are going to have to listen really fast this morning, and I will try and keep up in my speaking But if we rewound the story just a little bit and we backed ourselves all the way to the beginning of the book of Exodus, what we would discover is that the Israelites, God's people, are slaves in Egypt. They had been slaves for just over 400 years when a guy named Moses emerges on the scene and he is the one through whom God is going to set his people free from their captivity. And when Moses leads the people out of Egypt, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. This is an important detail that I want you to just put in the back of your brain and hold on to it there. But when Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, the picture is this idea that when the people enter into the Red Sea, they entered as slaves and they emerge on the other side as people who have new life. In fact, in the book of Exodus, it talks about this event as if God were adopting the Israelites to be his people to be his child. We see in Exodus chapter four, God calls the Israelites. He literally says like, you are my son who's emerged out of this water. So I want to adopt you into my family. 
And it's not just for this dramatic effect, but it's this moment that demarcates the people have gone from slaves to free children of God. And after making their way through the waters, they are sent immediately into the wilderness. You see, without the convenience of highways and cars and Uber, that would have been nice. How many Ubers would they have needed to get out of Egypt? Without the convenience of airplanes and airports, the Israelites are having to make their way from Egypt to the promised land, the good old ancient fashion way of walking. And they're going to spend the next 40 years making that trek, making that walk. But these aren't going to be just empty years of traveling. You see, the number 40 in the scriptures is a particularly meaningful number. And when the scriptures use it, it sort of demarcates a long period of time. Sometimes it comes to us in 40 days. Sometimes it comes to us as 40 years. But either way, it's the way that the scripture writers are saying to us, God is going to do something significant in these people or during this time, but it's going to take a while to get there. And so Israel enters into the wilderness for 40 years, and God is going to use those 40 years to form them into a new kind of people, into his people, into promised land kind of people, into free people. And he's really going to do three different things in the wilderness, trying to form them in three different ways in the wilderness. Now, let me make a sort of note. I am stealing this summary of what God is doing in the wilderness from a guy named Dr. Scott Daniels, who's a phenomenal preacher who gave me these sort of points or ideas of of what God is doing in the wilderness that I found particularly helpful. But God is going to try and do these three things in his people during those 40 years. The first thing that he's going to try and form in them or change in them is their appetites. God is going to transform and change their appetites. Appetites, I guess, could work as well. But Walter Brueggemann, prolific Old Testament scholar who describes the Israelites as being formed in Egypt by this idea that called the myth of scarcity. Is that Israelites in Egypt are formed by the myth of scarcity. Now, the myth of scarcity is the idea that there isn't enough to go around for everyone. So you have to try and hoard and collect and accumulate and acquire as much as you possibly can for yourself. We see this happening in Egypt with Pharaoh, right? And this, this sort of myth of scarcity runs counter to what Brueggemann calls the liturgy of abundance, Now, these are very fancy-sounding phrases, but the liturgy of abundance really is this idea that when God creates things in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates things in abundance. And we see in the creation story, God creates plants and animals and people, and what does he command them to do? Be fruitful and multiply. Not just people, but fruit and animals. That is food, right? Provision for the creation, And so we see in creation, there's just multiplication, multiplication, multiplication. This is how God has created all things. But in Egypt, Pharaoh doesn't operate according to the sense that there's enough in the world for everyone. He operates in a way that there's not enough for everyone. And so everything is scarce. And so you have to acquire and accumulate things. And this is why he enslaves the Israelites, right? In that that 
that story originally is he has this fear that if the Israelites continue to be abundant, if they continue to be fruitful, eventually they'll be so powerful and so big that they will take everything that the Egyptians have and we can't have those foreigners taking things that belong to us. And this way of seeing the world has shaped the Israelites, right? There's not gonna be enough. There's not gonna be enough. And as the Israelites enter into the wilderness, they become quickly aware that there isn't anything to eat in the wilderness. There is no food. There is no Trader Joe's. There's no farms. There is nothing out there, particularly for tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people. But God does this miraculous thing that we see recorded in Exodus 16 where where it says that he rains down bread from heaven. Some of us might know this story as God raining down manna from heaven. That word manna comes from the question that the Israelites ask when they first see this stuff laying on the ground. They're like, what is that stuff? Like, what is laying on the ground all over here? And so we get this word manna. And God informs his people that every morning he will provide enough bread to sustain them for the day. And if they collect more than one day's worth of meals, it will go bad. And this practice of only taking what you need for the day is a reforming of their appetites to not crave and desire more than what they need. In some ways, it's a practice that forms in them a trust that God will provide for them. God will provide for them. God's creation has more than enough for everyone and it has more than enough for you Israelites. And they are to be a people who trust in God's abundance rather than the perceived scarcity that exists in the world. So God brings them into the wilderness and he wants these new people to have new kinds of appetites. Well, the second thing that God does in the wilderness is he wants to form a people who worship him alone a people who do not have idols but only worship the one true God. And their worship is to be characterized by a relationship of trust, not an idolatry of control. This is key. So God says, I want you to trust me in your worship, not try and control me as your God. You see, when God famously gives the the Ten Commandments, those first two sort of embody God's intention here. The first one is what? Do not have any other gods besides me. And the second one is don't make idols, right? This is that awkward, uncomfortable silence when you're not sure if you have the right answer or not. But don't make any graven images. Don't make any idols. You see, the thing about idols and other gods in the biblical story is that they're always set up in a sort of transactional kind of relationship. If you give them something, They ought to give you something in return. So if you give the right sacrifices, if you give the right amount of money in an offering, if you give up even your children in sacrifice, you could get something back in return. Perhaps you need rain. Perhaps you need sun. Perhaps you need an abundant crop and harvest that year. But here's the problem with idols and with false gods, is that the more we want from them, the more they take from us. And the more we give, the less they deliver. And this is still how idols work in today's world. Take the one that Jesus notes in the famed Sermon on the Mount. There he says, you can't serve both God and money. 
most of us, a lot of us actually, I I would almost say universally all of us, feel this sense of longing to do something and be something meaningful, to seek and to find a sense of value in the world. And what if there was something in the world that we could wear or drive that would affirm and give us this sense of meaning and of value? What would we be willing up to give to acquire those things? What if there was a home in a certain kind of neighborhood that would be a symbol of our meaning and worth to our neighbors in the world? What might happen if we as a people dedicated our lives in pursuit of those things? What kind of society would we create and would be shaped by a people who, who, who loved and served and wanted something from that idol of money? What if we built an entire economy on people consuming, buying, purchasing, and upgrading every single time that they could? What would happen to their marriages? What might happen to their anxiety levels or their stress levels, their emotional and physical health? What would happen if they gave themselves over to that kind of idol? Would they ever have enough? And when they did have enough, would they know it? and be able to stop in that pursuit. You see, the thing about idols is that they deliver to a point, but they always take more than they can deliver. And this isn't the relationship that the people of God are to have with him. God doesn't want a transactional relationship with them. He doesn't say, worship me and I will do fill in the blank for you. And so we live in this sort of control, transactional kind of relationship the relationship that we've been created for is to worship God in a way that trusts God that we trust him truly and entirely not just because he does things for us so we have these two things that God is trying to shape these new kind of people to be control of their appetites and that they would worship in trust not control of him. But there's this third thing that God is going to form in them, and it's a new kind of politics. Now, I know many of you just sort of had a mini heart attack because the pastor just said politics in a sermon on a Sunday morning, okay? Oh, pastor, you cannot say the P word. We do not say the P word in church. Church, after all, is a spiritual thing. Church and the Christian faith is about spiritual realities, But what we actually discover in the Bible, and you really can blame Jesus for this, is that the love for God is always inextricably caught up in what? Love for a neighbor. Is that if you do not love your neighbor in this horizontal level, you cannot love God is what Jesus seems to indicate. And so the scriptures and the gospel by nature are sort of political thing. And I'm not saying this sort of polarized Republican-Democrat politics. I I mean in the more general sense of how we treat our neighbors. How do we get along with one another? How do we live with one another? And what we discover is that in God's kingdom, God is to be their king. And they would be marked by these three things. If you read sort of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, if you read all of the prophets as well, you kind of What emerges on the scene of what God wants his people to be like are these three things. First, they're to be hospitable to the vulnerable. The first thing that's supposed to mark this new people in this new land, in this new community, is that they are hospitable to the vulnerable. 
There are always going to be those who are part or on the fringes of our communities who are going to be vulnerable, and you are not to mistreat or oppress them. And this is ultimately rooted in how Pharaoh mistreated the Israelites and God's people when they were vulnerable people. We see these words in Exodus chapter 22. You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were foreigners in the land of Egypt. And in a time of vulnerability where you didn't have food and there was famine, you were exploited as slaves. Or you see these words shortly after in Exodus 22. He says, uh, do not exploit the widow or the orphan or create sort of malicious money lending practices that abuse the poor. When people are vulnerable, we as a people of God in the promised land, my people who serve me and my kingdom, we are going to have a politic that is hospitable to the vulnerable, hospitable to them. But the second thing that God is trying to shape and form in terms of their community and relating to one another is that they will be a people that had a concern for the poor. They would be a people that would have a concern for the poor. You see, the whole law and Torah set up policies and mechanisms and practices that were sort of made sure that those who had little, who did not have much at all, were always cared for. Consider this instruction in Leviticus 23. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. Leave it for the poor and the foreigners living among you, I am the Lord your God. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 24, when you gather the grapes in your vineyard, don't glean the vines after they are picked. Leave the remaining grapes for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I am giving you this command. You see, for the memory of God's people, they're constantly to be recalled back to the way that they were treated as the poor. They were treated as a vulnerable, and they weren't going to be that kind of community in the promised land. But here's the third thing that God is trying to form in this new kind of people, and that is this, that they would trust God to be their strength. They would trust God to be their strength. Said in a different way, they would not be a people who trusted in their own strength. We see this refrain often throughout the Psalms, and it's said here in Psalm 20, verse 7. The psalmist writes, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What is the psalmist talking about? What is he talking about? He's talking about the sort of violent force that nations and empires in the ancient world operated with in that day. You see, Pharaoh and the nations in that world are marked primarily by their ability to assert their dominance and violence over other people. And God says, you are not to be those kinds of people. You are not to trust in your own strength, your own armies, and your own abilities. Instead, you are to trust in me. This is what the whole book of Judges is about. God is the king, and when the people need something, when they need some leader to emerge to help be the hand of God to act in the world on his behalf, he will raise them up. And so Israel enters into the wilderness to learn these things, these three things how to control their appetites, who they are to worship and how they are to worship, 
and a new kind of politics or a new kind of way of shaping community and being together. And they had 40 years to learn these things. And at the end of the law, how did they do? Fail, fail, fail on all three accounts. God, 40 years, significant time. We were supposed to do something. So how did we do? Fail, fail, fail. When they enter the promised land, they become like Esau, controlled by his appetite. They're consuming and accumulating and acquiring as much stuff as they can from the villages and towns and people that they plunder. See the story of Achan in Joshua 7. He just can't help himself but to take more than what he's supposed to take and not tell everybody about it. When Moses leaves for 30 seconds to go receive the Ten Commandments, what do they do? They build a golden calf. We got to have another God. We got to have another idol that we worship. We can't just have Yahweh as the one in whom we trust. And when they get into the promised land, they finally make it into that place. What is it that they begin to beg Samuel for? We want a king like all the other nations. We want to operate and trust the ways that they operate, not in the way of you, God. You're just getting in the way of the things that we want. Failed, failed, failed. And this is what makes our text so important to us this morning, their failures. If you go back to our text this morning, what you discover, you should just jump back a few verses, is that Jesus is being baptized in the water. He enters into the water, and when he emerges out of it, when he's lifted out of the waters, the Spirit of God descends on him and proclaims these words, this is my son, like Israel whom I love. And as soon as he emerges out of the water, what we see is the Spirit of God sends him for 40 days in the wilderness. Bing, 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 right? This is the story of Israel playing out in the life of Jesus. And in the first one, his temptation, his first temptation, he faces three. In the first temptation, the, the tempter comes to him and says, you've been fasting for 40 days and now you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread and feed yourself do you believe that God will sustain you or do you got to do something on your own so that you can get fed do you trust in God's provision you have the ability to provide for yourself to create more than you actually need why are you waiting for God Jesus and in his tired state Jesus responds with a citation from Deuteronomy 8 Man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I trust God to sustain me, not in my own self. I trust God to provide for me. Then there's a second temptation that Jesus faces. The devil takes him to the highest point of the temple and challenges him. If you throw yourself down, can't you get God to save you? I mean, you're the son of God. He won't let your foot strike a stone. Don't you want to see a mighty work of God? Can't you get God to show up and do something miraculous on your behalf? And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16, don't put the Lord your God to the test. That is, I don't control God. I don't tell God what he has to do and how he has to prove himself. I can trust God without controlling him. And I do trust him. 
And in the third temptation that the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain looking over all the kingdoms of this world and he says to him, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. He takes Jesus overlooking all of the kingdoms of this world and he essentially says to him, all of these kingdoms, they belong to me. We get it explicitly said in Luke's version of the story And the devil's ownership of the kingdoms of this world is something that we ought to always be reminded of. But Jesus looks at all the kingdoms and he says, they do not extend hospitality to the vulnerable or the outsider, but they fear them. These kingdoms, they do not care for the poor, but neglect and exploit them. These kingdoms are built on violence and control. These I don't want these kingdoms. I want God's kingdom. I want my dad's kingdom. I want the kingdom that I'm about to bring into the world as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus says to the devil in that moment, he says, worship the Lord your God and what? Serve his kingdom only. Serve him only. And what we discover, church, in our text this morning, that though Israel failed in their vocation, Jesus does not fail. When he was tempted to be controlled by his appetite, he said no. When he was tempted to try and manipulate and control God, he said no. And when he was offered the kingdoms of this world, he said no. And this is where the good news, the really glorious good news comes in for us as a church. Because Jesus was faithful Those who place their faith in him not only receive his righteousness, but are made new in him. That is what the law was unable to do in Israel, the grace of God can do for those who are in Christ. And this news is particularly important to us during the season of Lent. You see, in the Lenten season, we're reminded that these temptations that Israel faced And the temptations that Jesus faced, we still face today. Now, most of us surely are not wondering where our next meal is going to come from. In fact, most of you, half of you at least, know yours is coming at the baby shower. And it's going to be awesome and delicious and tasty. But we do know what it is to be controlled by our desires and our cravings and our longings. We live in a world that's caught up in the needing to have the right logos on our clothes, the right hood ornament on our cars, the latest and greatest upgraded technology. We derive meaning and value from these things that we consume. We wrestle with that same issue that Israel dealt with. I long for, I yearn for, I want, I want, and if you can't give it to me, God, I'm going to go find it on my own somewhere else. Most of us aren't building golden calves in our garages. If you are, we need to have a talk. But how many of us relate to God in such a way so as to try and get him to do the things we want him to do? How many of our prayers are pleading to God to do something that we think he ought to do? How many of us only come to church when we really need something from God? God, I need you to show up. I need you to heal. I need you to save. So I'm doing my religious duty because you're supposed to be faithful to us and to me. But do we live in living trust with God? 
Do we worship and trust that even if God doesn't show up to do the miraculous, that he's trustworthy? How are we relating to our neighbors, to the vulnerable, to the outsiders, to the poor? Would someone look at our lives and quickly identify the kingdom of God and the love of Jesus? To be a little transparent this morning, I'm always nervous to use words like outsiders or foreigners, poor in the church because of the sort of political overtones that that language has. But when I, when I read the Old Testament, when I just read the Bible, when I read in particular the minor prophets and the major prophets in the Old Testament, the thing that Israel failed at the most were those things. Because God genuinely cares about the poor and the outsider and the vulnerable. It's not, for me, some political platform that I'm trying to say, this is the way that I see the world. I think it's the way that God sees the world. When I read the text, it's what I see. And the question that we have to ask ourselves continually over and over and over, this is the cliche of love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds so cliche until we insert it into the realities of the world in which we live. And you realize how radical of an idea it is to love in the way that Jesus is guiding and instructing us. Throughout history, the disciplines that the church has exercised in the season of Lent are these three things. Fasting, prayer, and acts of charity or mercy. Fasting, prayer, and acts of charity and mercy. That is, the discipline of controlling our appetites. Can you fast from something? Truly. I'm, I, don't, I don't like to talk about what I'm doing, but I'll, I'll share a little because I've shared with some of you. I'm fasting from coffee. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. I, <laughs> at 4 o'clock on Thursday afternoon, I was like, why am I so sleepy? I usually work till like 6.30. What's going on? I need my buzz, my caffeine buzz. What controls us and our appetites and our desires and our longings? When it comes to prayer, are we seeking the will of God for our lives? Do we desire and long for the things of God or are we wanting God to do the things that we desire? In Lent, we begin to pray prayers. God, examine me. Where my heart? Am I not aligned with your will? And make me aligned there. It's not about what you can do for me. It's about, about how I'm being formed into the image of Jesus. And so prayer and then acts of charity or mercy as a way of saying we intentionally go about loving our neighbors in the world as Christ loves our neighbors in the world. We begin to practice in this Lenten season, these 40 days of journeying towards Easter and the cross to be formed into a new kind of people, into God's people, into the adopted children of God, that we might be the community that displays the kingdom of God in the world. This is what we want to happen at Lent every single year, to be Christian people, to be Jesus people. See, we stand church 40 days out from Easter. This is our annual family vacation into the wilderness. And God wants to do something significant in us because we are in Christ. These 40 days don't have to be wasted. They don't have to be, but they might be. And I invite you as a church and us as a community of faith to exercise these three things and in so doing, what we might discover 
is that we become a new kind of people, a new kind of community, the adopted children of God. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be in you, and we want to be your people. Not in name or title alone, but in quality and character. And so we ask God that these 40 days journeying to the cross and the empty tomb would not be wasted. We believe that you can do new kinds of things in a new kind of people. And so we ask that you do. Would we be found faithful in the wilderness as Jesus was? And when we fall short, God, we need your grace and forgiveness and we trust that you will extend it. It's the name of our Lord and Savior that we pray, amen.